I want to welcome you tonight. Thank you for joining us as we continue our study in the book of Philippians. We started last week by just looking at the first couple of verses, and tonight we're going to continue our study in Philippians chapter 1. Let's just give a little bit of background just so we're, we're all up to speed here. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to the church in Philippi. You can read in Acts 16 about when this church was founded and some of the first converts there. But Paul is writing to this church, and he is in prison in Rome, imprisoned under the infamous emperor Nero. Paul is there chained probably between two Roman soldiers. He's aging. He's probably in declining health, and he's writing to this church that is discouraged, uh, that is fearful because of Paul's imprisonment. And from Paul's perspective, really, his future is uncertain. We'll hear him say in... uh, later on in the book of Philippians, that he's not sure whether he's going to live or die, but he's writing to this church and he encourages them. And this book overflows with themes of joyfulness and thanksgiving. And so instead of Paul kind of falling down into some kind of self-pity and fear or frustration, we see him encouraging this church. You know, one of the major themes of this epistle is this idea of finding joy in adversity. Uh, You'll see joy mentioned over and over throughout the book until sort of the climax in chapter 4 where Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, again I say, rejoice. Joy became uh, one of the hallmarks of this church, so much so that Paul in his letter to the church at Corinth would even use uh, this church as an example. He said, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And Philippi was one of these uh, churches. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul uses the example of joy and adversity that the church in Philippi embodied. It asks, causes us to ask the question, how do we find joy in this life? Where do we look for, for joy? As I was thinking about that, my mind went to the U2 song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. A song that expresses this search, this angst, this idea that there's something out there. We just can't quite get a hold of it. But I hope tonight, from this first chapter in Philippians, you'll begin to see that we have reasons for rejoicing as Christians. Let's begin in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reasons for rejoicing that we find here. God, may you cause us to hear from you. 
May you cause us to see. May you cause us to be changed. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First thing I want us to see in this passage is that Paul wants us to know the joy of prayer. Know the joy of prayer. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Look at what he says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. If you're familiar with the New Testament and the writings of Paul, all of his letters, for the most part, follow this same pattern where he has a greeting and then a section on Thanksgiving. And in the section on Thanksgiving, he will kind of hint at some of the themes that he'll dive into later in that letter. And that's exactly what he does here. He says, I thank my God. This idea that Paul had this personal, intimate relationship with the living God, that this was not just some God who was out there, some God who was far off, but this was Paul's God. He was acknowledging that all good things come from this God. And he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He's writing to this church. He's thinking about them. He's saying, I thank God every time I think of you. The uh, pastor and commentator Kent Hughes, almost in passing, kind of makes this point that Paul, as you read his writings in the New Testament, he rarely thanked God for things but he frequently thanked God for people. Paul was a people person. The church is made up of people. And here Paul is writing to this church that he loves so much. And he's saying, I thank my God every time I think of you. And look, look how many times he uses the word all. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. This is the same Greek word every time. And you think about Paul, you know, he had been mistreated by some of his closest friends. He had had friction and strife, even in this church. We'll find out later in chapter 4 that there was some conflict uh, between two people in this church. But Paul is wrapping his arms around them all. He's bringing them all together before the Lord in thanks. He's not excluding some. He's saying, I thank my God and my remembrance for you all. In the book that's kind of guiding our study, Christ-Centered Exposition, the author makes this point. He says, many problems in the church would disappear if we genuinely prayed for one another. Man, that's so true. You know, it's impossible to hate somebody and pray for them faithfully at the same time. The two just don't go together. And Paul says that as he prays, he prays with joy. Joy is one of the primary evidences of the Christian life. It's something that we often overlook, but it, we can't when we read Scripture. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 makes that clear. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's one of the ways that we know that we are children of God. Joy becomes this baseline because joy is not dependent on our circumstances. This is a joy that transcends circumstances. So that's why Paul can be sitting in a prison cell chained between two soldiers and writing with joy that's overflowing out of his heart. This is why Paul can say, yeah, kill me to live is Christ. To die is gain. It doesn't matter. Live or die, I have joy. Joy in famine 
and feasting. That's what Paul means when he says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content because his joy is not dependent on what's going on around him. His joy is dependent on his God. So Paul wants us to see the joy of prayer, but not just the joy of prayer. I want us to see number two, know the joy of fellowship. We get that from verse five. I'll begin in verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This word partnership is the word koinonia. It's a word that we see throughout the New Testament, and it's mostly translated fellowship. But in this verse here, partnership is probably the best translation couple things about this word. There are definitely some financial undertones to it. We know that the church in Philippi supported Paul financially. Uh, that was a concrete way that they helped. But it, it really has the idea of partnership in a mission. Uh, people that share a common goal. Uh, D.A. Carson would say the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. A lot of times, especially as Baptists, we talk about the word fellowship and we normally mean potluck. Somehow those two became related. Fellowship equals eating. But in the Bible, there's so much more to it than that. Fellowship has the gospel at its core. It has missions as its outlet. You know, there's a lot that can be gained from sitting around a table with someone and fellowshipping with them. But there is so much more to be gained by joining together in a common cause. You know, one of the ways that we do that around here is by sending people on short-term mission trips. There's a special bond. I've been to Mozambique several times to visit some of our missionaries there. And there's a special bond that happens with the people that you travel with. You spend 24 hours on a plane, you spend hours in a, in a van, and hours in tents out in the, in the middle of nowhere. And there's this bond that happens because you're coming together for a shared purpose. This is fellowship. This is partnership in the gospel. The gospel should, if you're a Christian, the gospel should be the glue that holds your relationships together. Nothing else is strong enough to do that. I'm sure you can look back on your life like I can on mine and see bonds that you've had with people that have changed over time. Maybe it's, you know, a a sport that someone begins to lose interest in, or maybe it's some other kind of thing that that used to hold you together but no longer does because you've gotten older and your interests have changed. But the gospel doesn't, doesn't change. So Paul is writing and he's thanking them. He's remembering them with joy because of their partnership in the advancement of the gospel. It's good to have partners. It's good to have fellowship with other believers. This really fights against this idea of Well, it's just me and Jesus. That's not a good way to lead a worship service. There are some things that we do here intentionally to fight against that. You know, we don't darken the room so that you can't see anyone and have just bright spotlights on the stage. No, we want to see the people that are in the room. We want to see each other as we're singing together, as we're praising the Lord. It's not a good way to lead a worship service, and it's not a good way to lead 
a Christian life. Christians are never meant to live alone. They're never meant to live in isolation from the community of faith. That's why the church is so important. All of us who belong to Jesus are partners in the gospel. We're recipients of God's grace. And so in a very real way, as you sit in church on a Sunday morning, that believer that's in the pew next to you or across the aisle from you that you may barely even know, you have more in common with that person than an unbeliever that you may share blood with, that that might be your biological relative, because we are bound by something even deeper than a blood relationship. We are bound by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good to know the joy of fellowship. But let's continue reading, uh, and I want us to see, number three, the joy of anticipation. Paul says in verse six, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Notice Paul's confidence here. He says, I am sure of this. He doesn't leave any room for anything else to happen. He doesn't say, I'm fairly confident or I think there's a good chance. No, he says, I am sure. And he can say that because salvation is God's work. In Acts chapter 16, I mentioned it earlier, it's the recording of the first convert in this city, in Philippi. And Paul is preaching, and it's this woman named Lydia. And this is what the Bible says, Acts chapter 16, verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It's not that Paul was persuasive enough, not that his arguments were strong enough, not that he spoke with enough emotion or enough eloquence. No, as Paul spoke, the Lord opened up Lydia's heart. Salvation is God's work. And so Paul can be confident, writing from a prison cell, that God's work will come to completion because, hey, if Paul dies, it doesn't matter. God's workmen may die. God always carries on his work. Salvation is God's work. We know this from the great passage in Romans chapter 8. He's writing and he says, For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that nobody gets lost along the way. Nobody falls through the the cracks. Nobody slips through. What God begins, God starts. I remember several years ago, I was taking uh, one of those personality tests. I don't remember which one it was. And they ask you all these crazy questions. And one of the questions on the test was, would you rather start a project or finish a project? It's so frustrating. I want to be like, I mean, both. Uh, But I ended up answering, I'd rather finish a project because there's nothing more frustrating to me than just all these projects that have started and never, never been finished. But nothing that God starts ever goes unfinished. That's why Paul can say confidently, I am sure that God will bring this to completion. Because God's plans, 
can't be stopped. Our plans can get derailed. That's why we say things like, well, Lord willing. You know, really, honestly, until last year, I always thought that was kind of a, a super spiritual way of speaking. But COVID had a way of reminding us that all of our plans can be completely derailed. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that, the Bible says. You know, we, some of us read uh, the book of Revelation and we get so caught up in, in all this imagery and everything that's writing that's so fantastic. And we miss the point that, hey, the Lord wins. Jesus wins. That's the point of the book of Revelation. Every step along the way is a God-ordained step. Every blessing comes from him. Every trial comes from him. God is working on us, but he's bringing it to completion slowly but surely. There's a great uh, old hymn that's been uh, retuned recently, and uh, it's called He Will Hold Me Fast. And this hymn really expresses exactly what I'm talking about. The first verse says this, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. It's God's goodness that carries us. It's God's goodness that brings us to the finish line. You know, I'm not confident in my goodness. I'm not confident in my resolve or my perseverance and dedication, but I am confident in God's. And Paul can say, what God has begun, he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that? He means at the return of Jesus Christ, at the end of the age. And as Christians, our duty is to live each day in light of that day, to remember that we are citizens of heaven even as we live here right now. We are ambassadors for Christ. The Bible says we are sojourners on this earth. We always have to live with this future orientation. This idea that, as C.S. Lewis said, we are made for another world. Paul wants us to know the joy of anticipation. And lastly, Paul wants us to know the joy of affection. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. The language that Paul uses here, this emotional language, is stronger than in any of his other letters. It's clear that he loves the people in this church with a special love, with a deep love. He says, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's a reminder that you can't love God and not love people. It just doesn't work that way. We know the great commandment. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul exemplified this. Romans chapter 16, if you remember, we just finished studying that book not that long ago here. But in Romans chapter 16, if you remember, Paul lists the names of about 30 people, 30 people that he was connected with, that he wanted to check on, that he was praying for, that he was thankful for. 
Paul was a people person. Paul loved people because Paul loved God. And once again, notice how inclusive he writes. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Again, he's not leaving anyone out. It's interesting that in verse 7, we see the first mention of his imprisonment. I've talked about it, but, but up to the point in this letter, Paul hasn't mentioned it. Paul hasn't said, here I am, I'm writing to you from prison. No, he begins with thanksgiving and joy and affection and just kind of mentions, hey, you, you're partners with me. This word partakers, same word, fellowship, this koinonia. You are participating with me in my imprisonment. You've helped me in my imprisonment. You've prayed for me in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We've talked a lot about joy tonight. And so I think it would be helpful to, to reflect on uh, some practical things. Uh, John MacArthur, in his commentary on the book of Philippians, he lists a lot of reasons uh, that we can find our joy robbed as Christians. And I'm not going to mention all that he mentions, but I do want to mention a few. What robs us of our joy as Christians? Number one, John MacArthur would say, a false salvation. It may be that you think you're a Christian, but you are not a Christian. The Bible said that there will be some who say, Lord, Lord, and Christ says, I never knew you. It might be that you think you're a believer, but you're actually not. And so this joy that we're talking about isn't something that you experience because you're not a believer. Not just false salvation, but an inadequate understanding of God's sovereignty. This is a word that we say all the time around here. God's sovereignty, God's providence, the idea that God is in control. Because when we really grasp that truth, it's such a great assurance. It's such a great source of confidence and joy in this world because our God, our Father who loves us, who is all good, is in control. We can trust him. He is faithful. It's what the prophet Habakkuk said. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, yield, the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. All those things Habakkuk lists are material things, are things that are necessary and things that are nice. But, Paul, but Habakkuk says if all of that is stripped away, it doesn't matter because my reason for rejoicing is in the Lord. So maybe you just have an inadequate understanding of God's sovereignty. Maybe the reason why you might not have joy today is because of prayerlessness. Maybe you just don't pray the way that you should. Later in the book of Philippians, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God is inviting us to come to him. God is inviting us 
to lay our needs and our anxieties and our cares before him because he loves us and he cares for us and he wants us to come to him so that he can help us. And so maybe the reason why you don't have joy tonight is because you aren't taking advantage of what God has given us in prayer. Maybe you don't have joy because you are just not thankful. You have a spirit of ingratitude where you think that you are always owed more than what you have. You're not thankful for what the Lord has done for you. Or maybe maybe it's forgetfulness. Maybe all of the good things, all of the blessings are things that slip your mind and you only allow yourself to focus on, on the hard times and the hard things. The psalmist recognized this and said in Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of what God has done, and when we do, we'll realize how, how much reason we have to praise him. And I'll just mention one more. Uh, maybe there's not the joy that's in your life that needs to be because you are neglecting the grace of Christian community. One of the problems over this last year, as many of us had to worship remotely, is that if we're not careful, we become comfortable uh, sitting on our couch watching a worship service. And we're so thankful for the technology that afforded us, uh, that, that we were able to do that. But that was uh, like a Band-Aid. That was not the way that church should be. God has designed us for community. God has put us into a family. And so I encourage you, if that's you, I encourage you to get back into church as soon as you can. So now I want us to really just think about one of two, one of two questions. We've talked a lot about joy. We've talked about God beginning a work and bringing it to completion. And so I think it's good for us to end by just a, a moment of reflection. Do you see the Holy Spirit at work in your life? Do you see him working? Do you see him making him, making you more like himself? Do you see a greater desire for holiness? Do you see a desire to uh, fight against sin? Do you see a a greater love for God and for his word and for his people? And if you can sit here and say, yes, I, I know. I know that God has begun this work in my life. And God is calling you to live with joyful confidence in this world. He's calling you to live on mission. Wherever you are, he's reminding you to be thankful for the partners that God has given you. He's commanding you to be joyful in every situation. But maybe you're sitting here tonight and you say, well, no, I, I don't know uh, that God has begun that, that good work. Then I want you to be encouraged today because the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Do you believe that God loves you as you are and that Christ died to make you more like him? then all that's left for you to do is to turn from your sins, to put your faith in Jesus Christ and trust in his completed work. Ask him to begin that good work in you even now.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. I pray for every person watching and listening tonight that you would cause us to reflect on these questions and answer them honestly, that you would move in the hearts of all of us and cause us to be more like Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.